Hello and welcome to another edition of the From the Clubhouse podcast. I am back. You've been moonlighting with your friend James Luke and making like massive, massive gains up the blooming charts in my absence. I don't know what that says about your hosting, Tom. Well, I don't know how I felt really when you sent me that screenshot. Look, we're fourth in the Apple podcast charts. And thank you all for subscribing. Please do so. If you don't subscribe to this podcast, please do so immediately so you never miss another episode. Uh, but last week I was away, so Steve had, did a podcast on his own with James Luke, and it was our most successful one for ages. <laughs> we were the number four ranked podcast in GB&I. It was yeah. incredible. It's, it's very counter to the feedback we get on social, Steve, though, isn't it? So I don't think we'll make any rash changes just yet. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, anyway, I've been away, been playing a bit of golf. Today we are gonna we're gonna have a chat through some of the stuff that's been happening on tour. Um, there's kind of a debate to be had. We think about what's going on at the DP World Tour. Um, we want to kind of assess some of these WHS changes. So last week, um, if you haven't listened to the podcast from last week, Steve had a good hours chat with James Luke from England Golf about all of the changes to WHS that are coming in as of April 1st next year. It's not an April Fool's joke. Um, And we want to get sort of stuck into two or three of those in a bit more detail and see whether we think they're a good or a bad thing for the club golfer. Um, And I think that they are sort of pretty seismic changes. Um, And sort of talk a bit more about kind of WHS in the round and how it is here to stay and and golfers' reactions to it, perhaps not really being accepting of that. Um, this podcast is, as ever, brought to you by TaylorMade, um, and it's been a big week for them. Roy McIlroy's got a new driver in play that we've seen on the uh, USGA-approved list, and he's going to be wielding in Dubai. Um, it's a funny thing, that, isn't it, Steve? Because that driver won't launch until next year and will be under strict embargo, but it's kind of already out there, isn't it? Am I allowed to say this without... I'm in danger of probably mortally offending our sponsors here, but I, I just I just think that golf club embargoes are daft. <laughs> when when a player is wielding a club on the course, let's just start, let's just start talking about it. It's hard, um, isn't it, in the sort of social media age of everybody at every tour event having a camera? Um, well, I I think you you talked about the USGA conforming list and um and this is where i think sort of everybody's marketing plans fall down a little bit because there's somebody somebody now is always watching whether it be in the media or whether it be someone really astute punter on social media all of these possible avenues for all of this new equipment are always being watched at every stage so as soon as something goes for process obviously um, all new equipment has to go to the RNA and the USGA for testing, so it can go on the what's called conforming list. As soon as it appears on the for- or conforming list, or as soon as a player sort of steps onto a tee with one, the secret's out, really, isn't it? Um, I kind of think probably companies love this to a certain extent because it does get a buzz going around. Around they get two bites of the cherry, I suppose, don't they? They get the buzz this week because here's Rory with his new tailor-made driver. And then obviously they get the buzz of official launch when everyone's had a test of it in January. But I do I do find it a little bit frustrating from a consumer point of view that this club's out there. I actually want to know more about it right now. Massively. Like we were chatting sort of offline about this. 
And I just think that it's, it's an amazing piece of marketing because everyone's talking about it this week. Um, and it's there's nothing better than a secret, is there? So everyone's talking about it in a kind of very authentic way because they sort of almost feel like they shouldn't be talking about it. Um, yeah. So I think it's pretty cool. I haven't um, I haven't any conversation with Taylor made about the tech in it or anything like that. So I think it's it does create like a, a very natural buzz about a new product launch that will come next year, and obviously hopefully will win. Um, but it does kind of like lead us into the kind of oddity of the um, the Tour Championship or the the race to Dubai final where Macro has already won. So one yeah, of the you reasons- have some you have some very strong views on this, don't you? Um, on players who may not be playing the majority of their golf on in European shows walking off with titles. Well, I don't know. I mean, we so <clears throat> one of the reasons he's going to put a new driver into play this week. Like they do sometimes at the Ryder Cup, Steve. Another event they're not really that bothered about <laughs> is that is that he's already he's already won um, the race to Dubai, so it's not like he's got a title on the line. Um, I think the sort of peculiar thing about this year is that he's won without picking up a club. So I think I'm right in saying that Moronk needed to finish um, fifth or better in South Africa. And he ended up in a tie for 15th or something, which handed the race to Dubai title to McElroy without picking up a club. So that is one element of it, that have you really got a fit for purpose um, race to Dubai, in inverted commas, if, if you can win it without playing in the in the season's denouement? And the second thing is, yeah, there's, there's definitely a line of argument that says McElroy's played so few DP World Tour events. I think he's played nine outside of the majors, which would account for four of the events that he's played in. Um, now, he has had decent finishes right enough in the in the DP World Tour events that he has played in. He won the Scottish. He was 15th in Ireland. He was sixth at the BMW, I think. Um, so he has played well when he's played, but he's played in nine events. Ram's played in seven, so even fewer, and finished second. And then when you get down to the kind of actual DP World Tour stalwarts, you're, you're into people like Moronk, um, who's played in kind of 22. Um, so it does sort of rather beg the question is, what what are you rewarding here? Um, I think, I don't think you're quite right in saying I've got strong views on it. Hannah was saying she thought it was ridiculous that um, the majors even counted towards uh, DP World events. I'm I am less bothered about this, I think, than... Some than some other people might be. I think if I think if we were talking about someone like Morikawa or Scotty Scheffler, um, I think Morikawa in the past has had an opportunity to do this. Patrick Reed definitely has. Um, but I think if we were talking about someone who hardly ever appeared in Europe and was basically going to win on the basis of what they'd done purely in the majors, then I'd, then I'd have more issue with it. But the fact is, as you say, you know, McElroy won the Scottish Open. He won the Dubai Desert Classic. So he's won twice on the DP World Tour this year. He's had obviously a very good year in the majors. He's performed quite well in other DP World Tour events that, he, that he's gone to. He's probably, I think, I'm, I'm, this is off the top of my head, so feel free to tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sure listeners will, but he's probably played more on the DP World Tour this year than he has previously because he committed to the Middle East swing at the start of the year when in previous years he hadn't. Um, partly that'll be because of the DP World Tour, PGA Tour strategic alliance against Liv. There'll be there'll be some of that in that I would expect. But he's played he's played enough, I think, in Europe for a guy who lives in America 
Um, and, and that's the thing. It's not like he, it's not like he lives in the UK anymore. He lives in the United States. His wife's Americans, kids are American. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with it. He's, he's won twice on tour. He's had good performances in the majors. What more does anyone want? Really? How many times has Moronk won more than him once? I know he's played a lot more events, but Moronk's won one more time on the DP world tour this year than, than Macarillo's. Um, I don't want to nick these opinions my own because I think they're quite good. Hannah's point about the majors were that they're different rights holders. They're like nothing to do with the DP World Tour, same as they're nothing to do with the PGA Tour. And it's a pretty reasonable point, is it? That why why actually are you counting the majors towards your FedEx um, Cup or your race to Dubai? Why are you not just saying it's a separate thing that's just for events we actually own? What happens with the WGCs? There's only two now, isn't there? Is there do they count... They in count, the schedule in the same way. They count I mean, towards um, um, FedEx Cup, don't they? Yeah, I've I've no issue with with this really. Um, if if there'd been one, if it'd been one, if he if he played once and then like won two of the majors and was coming to Dubai solely on the grounds that he had a chance to scoop the race to Dubai and the DP World Tour Championship, I'd be. I'd be much more outspoken about it, but he's he's played he's played enough in Europe. I mean, like as I say, he played in Ireland, he played in Scotland, he played at Wentworth. Um, you know, he's playing in Dubai again. He played in Dubai at the start of the year. What more do you want? I think um, I think the optics of it outside of kind of the bubble of like the golf industry are actually pretty good. Like if you're reading the Times as a general sports fan and you read that McElroy's won the race to Dubai for the third consecutive year, whatever it is then that kind of makes sense because you think, well, Roy Michael probably is the best golfer from Europe. So I'm, I'm not surprised he's won the, that, that particular event. So I think for the kind of credibility of the tour sake, the best player that's got a membership of your tour winning your tour championship, that's kind of logical. Um, so I don't necessarily have that huge problem with him winning it or Ram finishing second or whatever else because they are the best players who have got membership of that particular tour. I think why well, I've got a bit of a problem with it is one without playing. So everyone well, everyone laughs at the 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 fudge that is the um, the tour championship in in the US and the playoff nature of it. Um, and obviously they've now they've currently gone down this sort of handicap system um, where you you are you have an advantage if you're leading the money list going into the last week, but you're not guaranteed to win it. Um, and whilst that feels a bit kind of contrived, like it at least puts something on that last event. Um, and not this year, but the year before, when McElroy came from behind to beat Scheffler, like that worked. Um, and there's there's often sort of half a dozen play, players who can still win um, the Tour Championship or the FedEx the FedEx Cup, um, and that is just isn't the case in Europe. So I think that that if, I, if you would be you would be having to look at that if you're trying to get value for a the sponsor and b to make that last event a spectacle. If I was. Uh a DP world tour slash European tour watcher, I'd be much more concerned about the fact that 10 of my leading performers are about to up sticks and go onto the PGA tour rather than the fact that the race to Dubai hasn't gone into the last week. Um, I I think, I I think that personally, I I know I'm going to plug the piece written by my colleague, Matt Chivers today, who's, um, who's talked about this. Um, so feel free to uh, read his comments on nationalclubgolfer.com. But it just it just appears to me to be complete lunacy that um, we've got 10 players who've done really, really well 
on on their sort of native tour, and we're going to reward them by basically waving goodbye to them for at least a year. See, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do that in subsequent years with everyone else who finishes in that top ten as well. I don't. I'm just not doing this again with you. I'm not doing this again with you because we've done this. But like the, when you look at the um, when you look at the standings on the DP World Tour site, they've now got little flags next to them, haven't they? A little PGA Tour logos, haven't they? Well, yeah, yeah which I think is pretty, it's pretty cool. Like you get that in the um, run up to the Open, don't you? About who's in and who's out, um, and it adds it adds a story to the Irish and the Scottish or whatever events precede um, the Open because people are vying for a, a place in the British. Um, so I'm, I just I'm just not against it at all. I just think it's the absolutely correct direction of travel, and I I wonder how much in the broadcast of the um, of the race to Dubai final, that that will be a thing that people are still competing for PGA Tour card for the next year. If it's going to be something that's kind of brushed under the carpet because people are like, oh, we don't want to be shouting about this because it is undermining the credibility of our tour. I think that's definitely the wrong approach to go. They've done it. I mean, and they should be making it, it should be like a massive storyline of like who's won a card for the next year. But I think it is, isn't it? I mean, if you looked at their social last week, I think there was a tweet that I saw, an X that I saw. Um, with um, with Hogard, where um, the 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 post was not about him having a putt to finish high in a DP World Tour event. It was the fact that he'd nailed this putt, and he was more likely to get a PGA Tour card. Well, yeah, I mean that's 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 what it is. I mean, like we you've just sent one of your team to go and cover DP World Qualifying School. It's the same thing. You, it's, you're going for the same. Storyline. It's someone who's make, had a career-changing performance. That is a much bigger story than McIlroy winning another four and a half million quid for doing nothing. Like the fact that the Hogards or whoever else or Moronk has now done well and so well on the secondary tour in the world, he's now qualified for the best tour in the world. That's the storyline, just the same as it is someone who's going to get through seven or eight rounds of DP World qualifying this week. It means something to those people. That this latest victory means nothing to McIlroy. Clearly, he didn't even turn up to play. I'll look forward to seeing you in your executive box seats at a DP Wilter venue very soon. What do you mean? What does that mean? <laughs> I've not been critical of it, have I? <laughs> You're being its biggest supporter. Oh, you mean I've like been it. a flag waver for it? Well, just I just think it's inevitable. I just think it's one of these things where the decision they've made is like pretty pragmatic. I get, and I kind of understand the sort of uproar amongst the fifty-plus-year-olds who all they can remember is the Benson hedges at freaking Bingley St Ives. But if those days are long gone, but you can't on the on the one hand, again we're, we're spending too long on this probably. But you can't on the one hand decry the quotes standards of the European Tour and strength of field of the European Tour when on the other hand your best performance are being waved off with a sort of golden goodbye and a plane but that's, ticket. But that's like, that is literally like saying the championship football is not worth watching. It's not true, is it? It's still an amazing standard. It just happens to be a standard that's better. We'll see how it all works out in the fullness of time when uh, Monsieur Moronk and co are plying their trades on the PGA Tour. Yeah, what if let's we... move on to handicapping, Tom. Okay, let's move on to handicapping. Jesus. It's not going to be affecting tour players, is it? No, it isn't. Right. So I listened with great interest, Steve, great interest to your podcast last week with James Luke and his dulcet northeast tones. He's very, um, uh, he's very laid back, chap, isn't he? 
I think you need to be laid back if you're going to be running handicapping in England. It's a bit. It's it's not. It's not a topic, is it, for someone who is um, prone to emotion? But and, and he sort of he kind of entered the fray kind of halfway through, didn't he? I wonder if they said at his interview, "Have you got a thick skin? Do you know where? Do you know how to mute notifications on Twitter?" I mean, to be fair to him, he was um, he's been on a handicap committee at his club. So he's seen golfers at the very sharp end as well, you know, complaining directly to him about various things of handicapping. And I think, I think he's, I think he's been in the trenches enough um, to be able to deal with the slings and arrows of social media. And he is, and he is like a bona fide club golfer, like plays off four or five, doesn't he? And he's like a regular in his Saturday swindle. And he sort of gets it, I think. Yeah. Puts his cards in, plays in competitions, enjoys club life. I mean, you you know, you're essentially arguing with one of your own, yeah. Um, when you're arguing with him, yeah. So it feels it feels like he's the kind of right the right man for the job, but it is quite the job, isn't it, at the moment? So, for you must listen. If you haven't listened to last week's podcast, please go and do it because it is like a um, a rundown of all of the changes that have been made to WHS. I think the first thing that's worth saying is that it's it's four years, isn't it, since it was brought in, but Two of those years were severely COVID affected. Certainly, the first year was. Yeah. Um, so, so, so World Handicap came in at the start of 2020. Um, the as with the rules of golf, there's going to be a four year review of the rules of handicapping. So we've just gone through a rules of golf revision at the start of this year, back end of last year, and now we're going through uh, rules of handicapping. But the point you make is a very good one. So, firstly, we relate to the party in GB and I with World Handicapping. We didn't bring it in until. November 2020 and then obviously when we did bring it in we brought it in with the idea of giving golfers a six-month lead-in so we'd we'd all get into the competition season April 2021 and everyone would know what they're talking about and then basically I think about four days after World Handicap System was launched we went straight into a lockdown for a month and then it was winter and Christmas and no one played golf and then we went into what was it like another eight-week ten-week lockdown was it January to March in 2021 so we're on the back foot immediately with WHS from the very, very start because all of the education, all of the in-person stuff that England Golf would want and all other national associations would have wanted to do in terms of uh, in-person meetings, education, all of that sort of stuff went out the window because we were all locked in our homes. Now, I appreciate there is Zoom and other video conferencing facilities, but it's not the same thing. Um, so there were some... There were some uh, education provided there but largely golfers went into April 2021 blind about WHS even though there'd been obviously a lot of publicity from us and other media a lot of um, a lot of work done what could be done in lockdown and um, with clubs but we all know that w- as human beings we're very last minute about stuff anyway aren't we um, we sort of we only, we only sort of respond to change when it's immediately upon us, and none of this stuff was was really able to be um, explained in the way I think that anyone would have liked. So we go into April 2021 with WHS with all this new stuff to try and get our heads around, and now what is it? Back end of 2023, and we're changing it again in April 2024. It's not a long time for people to get used to the system, Tom, is it? Two and a bit years, especially such a radical change. And now we're altering it again. So I can understand why 
there is some there is some uproar about it because for a lot of golfers it will only just feel like they've got used to this and now it's changing again and the changes are dramatic in some cases so i think that is that that's me is the big thing is that i still you still play with people and i would count myself among them when you're not really sure what you're doing you sort of turn up there's a board on the first tee you can put you um you can obviously look up the information on the England golf app, but it is all still pretty new. Um, and the kind of impact of it is new. Um, so it does feel like a pretty rapid change. Um, and when you get a rapid change, it's normally admittance that it was wrong in the first place. Um, so I think in certainly in a couple of instances, these changes are like really sensible. I mean, I'm sure they're not responding to feedback necessarily, but it kind of feels like they are answering some of the main um, criticisms of WHS to try and sort of put a little bit of correction into into some things. Um, so if we if we get started on some of these changes, so the big one, the sort of headline is course rating minus par, isn't it? Yeah. So in summary, this basically means that when you're calculating your uh, playing handicap, you're taking your handicap index and then you are adding or subtracting the difference between the course rating and the par of the course. So if you have a course rating of 75 and a par of 72, you're adding on three to your handicap. Um, and I don't want to talk about it in too much detail because we've written about it online. It's in last week's podcast, but that is the nub of it, isn't it? Yeah. If the par is lower than the course rating, players will receive additional strokes. If the par is higher, they will lose strokes. This applies for all handicap indexes. That's as simply, I think, as you can put it. Yeah. But the, but the, the sort of key thing here is that it applies to all handicaps equally. But obviously, if a scratch handicapper is benefiting from a three-shot increase because of a difference between course rating and par, that is a massively different proportion to a 15 handicap of getting three three additional shots. So yeah, we- people have argued with me about that. Um, and um, I, I agree with you. I think the fact that everyone is getting these strokes um, is almost irrelevant. Um, psychologically, the impact for the scratch ha- handicapper, the zero handicapper of suddenly getting three strokes on a par 72, course rating 75, is going to be profound, even though everyone is getting the three strokes. It's not, I mean, what I would say- it's not just psychological, it's just maths. Yeah, but everyone's getting the shots as well, remember. I mean, everybody's getting them. So I think that, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between the low and the high. And, and w- where people have have come at me with this is the opposite, you know, where the course rating's a lot lower than the par. Um, and then the low handicappers have been saying to me, well, we're going to lose quite a lot of strokes here compared to the par. Uh, and I'm sort of saying to them, well, so do the low handicappers, and they probably lose more as well because when the playing handicap's applied, then it'll affect them well, I mean, consequentially more. When, I, when, I mean, when I'm saying it's maths, I'm saying that if you play off one and you get three additional shots, that's 300% extra. If you play off yeah. thirty and you get three extra shots, that's ten percent extra. Yeah. It, so it, it mathematically, it's better for the lower mark. I'm glad you feel this way because the internet doesn't. Yeah. I would think that's got uh, to benefit lower handicappers more. I mean, the the the, the key thing um, I want to say about course rating minus part is that it it, it was an it. This is this is one of the things I genuinely think you can criticize handicapping chiefs about 
not implementing cost rating minus power in the first place. Um, I've never really been able to get a satisfactory answer as to why they didn't. Um, but the but the problem with not introducing it was twofold. The first one was um, golfers just lean towards the power of the course. So if you when you get a scorecard and it's got power of seventy two on it, you ignore what the course rating is. You don't care. You just go to the power of the golf course. And the problem with not implementing course rating minus power over the last couple of years is we've never been playing to the power of the golf course. We've been playing to the course rating instead. And that's just confused golfers like from the very outset um, because, and it's most easily expressed in Stableford in terms of the points that are allocated because, you know, obviously if your course rating is lower than your power, higher than your power, whatever the target score depends on what the course rating is, not what the power is. But everybody thinks that par is 36 points on the course of 72 power or whatever it is. So that was that. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how anybody thought that that was a good idea to, to change that um, at the start of 2020, when we brought world handicapping in into GB and I particularly, um, particularly, given that so many other jurisdictions in the world implemented course rating minus par. And the second problem you've got, and we alluded to it earlier, is you finally just got course rating established and people getting their heads around it. And now you're implementing course rating minus par, which again is like a massive change. It's a huge change, isn't it? Um, so it feels to me like, yes, we're on the right track with this now, and we probably should have done this in the first place. But it does feel to me like it was a bit of an error um, not to have done this from the very outset. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, I think the way I would sort of get it in my head that it's a bit like um, pre-applying um, standard scratch. So in the older days, we used to you. Or uh, Woodley, for example, it's kind of par 71 off the blue tee, standard scratch 74. So you'd go out and you'd be delighted if you broke 80. But that was kind of okay because the standard scratch was so high. And indeed, the competition standard scratch went up even further. Different point, I realise. Um, so I think this is like eminently sensible. I do think it will benefit the lower handicapper. But I also think it will kind of help you, certainly my brains. That if I can go out and play off the very back tees or Woodley and I get a handicap of four, let's say, versus my index of scratch, I think I'll be over the moon because I think that will like make my day a lot more enjoyable. That I feel like I'm getting some shots to help me round off the difficult back tees. Um, so I think that is, I think it's, I think it's very good for people going and playing difficult golf courses. Um, I think it's definitely going to benefit um, lower handicappers in club competitions. And I would be firmly of the view that the system as it is at the moment before this change was a, definitely a benefit to higher handicappers when it comes to Stableford or knockout golf. Yeah, it'll also have another interesting couple of side effects. Not, I don't know if that's the right word, but we'll, we'll get on to what these consequences are. So the first is that um, your course handicap should move more between T sets. So I noticed this the very, very first day of World Handicap System. Dan Murphy and I went to Ganton to try this out. And it didn't matter whether I played off the white tees or the yellow tees. The number of strokes I received was the same. It was 13 on that day. Now, obviously, the differential, the score differential, when my handicap was adjusted for gross score at the end was different, right? But as a golfer on the first day, I just looked at it and went, 
Well, I get 13 off the whites and I get 13 off the yellows. A, how is that possible? Like, why, why are they not moving? And B, why on earth would I now subject myself to the white tees when I get the same number of shots off the yellow tees? And this was an enormous confusion for me to start. I was like, how is this possible? And it was explained, as I said, as well, you know, the, the scoring, the score differential that gets worked out at the end will be different. But now, because of course rating minus par, and obviously the way that the course rating changes around T sets, we are going to see much more movement depending on whether we play the back tees, the middle tees, or the forward tees. And that, I think, is very much to be welcomed. Um, and secondly, and again, you know, this is a consequence of not bringing in course rating minus par from the start, but mixed tee events and mixed gender events are going to be much, much easier to sort out now from April when this comes in. Now, mixed tea and mixed gender events, I've been involved in these, I've been involved in playing in them, I've been involved in trying to trying to write about them, I've in some cases been involved in trying to organise them, and they've just been a disaster, frankly. They're just massively complicated, like mixed gender event. You have to get out a calculator to try and work it out. A mixed, a mixed tea event, I played in a mixed tea trial and you went back to the back tees at the club and you got three extra shots and you went to the forward tees and you might not have, and then you went, you know, it, it was just like, well, what am I getting? Like, why do I need, why do I need to look at a chart to work this out? Whereas um, with course rating minus par, it's just course rating minus par across all of the gen, across all mixed events and across all gender events, mixed gender events. And that's just going to be massively more simple. And it might actually promote, some more mixed tea events and mixed gender events because they've not exactly that there are some clubs who are more down this road than others but my experience of it is at certain traditional clubs is it's not they've not been massively well welcomed or massively participated in. and part of the problem with that is because no one's very sure of what on earth they're doing in terms of calculating and they can't be bothered frankly in dealing with the hassle so this this will this will be a huge change. It'll be a much better change when cost rating minus power comes in. Yeah, I mean there are a couple of things with that. I'm not sure that the vast majority of our listeners or club golf golfers really are that give that much of a shit about um, mixed tee events. Is the truth of it? Um, that's one. But they should. They definitely but should. Yeah, the, but I'm not sure they, they should. Do. I think that, I think that for the majority of golfers, what they're bothered about is equitable results in handicap competitions. Yeah, it's 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 just an absolute nonsense that our clubs continue to say that in every competition for men, for example, you've just got to go off the back tees. It's bonkers. I played with a guy uh, a week or so ago. We've just got our winter course going um, at York, which is obviously a much shorter course compared to the um, compared to the summer course. This guy can compete because it's a shorter course. He hits a straight ball. Hits a straight ball. He was speaking to me sort of around the 13th and the 14th, and he was in the frame. I can't, I don't know if he won a prize or not, but he was feeling extremely happy about this because, you know, he said, I'm on one hole, he was saying, I can't even make the carry off the back tees. Why are we subjecting all of our golfers to this? You know, competitions should be mixed tee to allow everyone to compete. We say, well, the handicap will go up, the handicap will go up, handicap will counter for this. Not if you can't make a carry onto a fairway, it won't. Doesn't matter if you've got 54 shots, really, then, does it? If you can't actually get it onto the onto the fairway. So I'm, I feel quite strongly about mixed, mixed tee events because I just think that they are truly equitable. And the course rating minus part, it'll subtract shots wherever and it will fix the handicaps for people and clubs should go more down this line rather than just string, stringently 
sort of saying back tease or else or lump it or go somewhere else or don't play. Yeah, don't disagree. I just think that um, anything that can, I think so course rating minus par to me also kind of helps with handicap manipulation a little bit, does it? Explain. Well, so I played at Seacroft on Friday. Plays very dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly, it's this sort of place where if I ever get asked the question, where would you like play your last round of golf? I'd probably play there. Um, and it's just amazing sort of links course on the East Coast, about 10 miles from where I grew up. And it's it's just all the things. It's got greens in the air. It's got hidden fairways. It's got two or three of like the best, the sort of most naturally designed holes in the country, the eighth, the 10th and the, and the 16th there, particularly 13 there as well, just the same. They're just, they're just great holes that just sort of sit in the land perfectly. I absolutely love it. Anyway, I went and played with them. Um, an industry colleague on Friday and um, we got it on a perfectly still day and um, it's obviously it's a links course so it was very very sort of dry considering underfoot but it was still very soft and we played it off um, their winter course where the course rating just doesn't move really and um, so I'm saying that for me playing off scratch that the the course rating should have been let's say three less than par really if I'd have shot three under I would have said that would be about right basically um but I will get a handicap I'll get a differential pull on submitting a card that day because I shot kind of level par um whereas I think I shouldn't really because I'm not I think the elephant in the room of these changes is that the course ratings have to be fit for purpose and they have to move as you make the point they have to move from tee box to tee box I'm not sure they do at the moment yeah, I mean, the course ratings have always been there. Um, the issue was that they, they didn't move in the way that they will under under course rating minus part. I should say on course rating as well, because you, you're you making you're making a wider point there, I think, about, um, you know, whether course rating as it is is fit for purpose. Well, I, think and bit, obviously, I think it's an elephant in the room, isn't it, that people would say that they're not. So, so what I can tell you is that, um, certainly within England, because I know the people involved, there's a phase two of course rating going on at the moment where those courses that were initially rated for WHS are now being re-rated. Um, and um, England Golf, uh, pro- I think he's probably been there for about a year now, maybe a little bit more. Jonathan Ward, obviously, who's their course rating manager, very, very experienced club golfer, very experienced rater as well, is at the helm of that. And just ensuring that there is a consistency within rating teams about how they rate courses. I mean, you've, you've seen the manual yourself. It's pretty big. Um, the, um, the knowledge that, that these, these, these guys have to have um, in order to properly rate a course. So I would hope that um, as we go through phase two, some of the anomalies that people have been talking about in the first phase of course rating are either found to be not there or are also ironed out. One of the things I would say in defense of course raters is, they didn't have an enormous amount of time in which to rate in England, for example, 2,300 courses. Um, it went on, it was going on for a couple of years before WHS, obviously, but then the process needed to be, it needed to be accelerated um, quite dramatically because of the introduction of the system and because of COVID. Yeah, but it's not. So it may work. It does, like, I think I sort of respect the journalism and I respect the sort of knowledge of the reason behind course ratings sometimes perhaps not being where they should be time and resource being the main thing but to you, uh, your average club golfer they don't care they just care that they think it's wrong 
Phase two will discover whether it is wrong or not, I'm sure. Um, and amendments will be made accordingly. I mean, my my uh, kind of belly button gazing on it is I just don't think there's enough differential between the T's often at places. I don't know enough. About, I, I haven't asked anyone um, at England Golf about course rating. If you asked me what I think is going to happen, I, I think that course rating will actually get lower um, than higher. Um, and I'm not sure that's what golfers necessarily want. I think a lot of golfers think their course is actually harder than it is. Um, and I think that when phase two is completed, what we might actually find is that that's gone the other way. Um, but that's a mere personal opinion. I have no evidence at this stage to back that up. Yeah. Um, and then the other elephant in the room is, are they going to rate the tees for women as standard? We don't think so, do we? I don't think so, no. Um, I, I think that um, they've been pretty clear about their reasons for that. We've asked them on, num- on numerous occasions. Uh, I think where what they what they have said, and I'm paraphrasing, and you can all write into me and bombard me if I'm wrong, but I think what they've said at the moment is where there is a need shown for such courses to be rated, they can't. They rating teams teams can go in and do it. Um, clubs can apply for temporary ratings if they feel there is a need, and then over that over that following two years, they can show in numbers how many times those tees have been played and whether there's uh, whether there's a prospect for them for the rating team to then come out and do it officially. But I do think. I mean, I I sympathise with that band of golfers, female golfers, who are very good, who at the moment feel like um, golf course rating isn't accepting of their ability and isn't catered towards their ability because there's clubs that obviously don't have rated tees off, say, the traditional colours, yellow or white. In terms of the overall picture, I can also see why a governing body would say, why would you necessarily, or, or a club would say, why would you necessarily want, why would we necessarily pay for white tees to be rated if three people are going to use them and the vast majority of our female membership are not? It's a balancing act. Um, I can see both sides of it. Did I do that diplomatically enough? I'm, yeah, I you know. did. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down it. We, we've got something quite chunky coming on this particular point, haven't we? Um, yeah. And, but it, and it also leads into this one, of the, one of the next changes we want to discuss. But it, it is worth saying again that the whole thing was just this opportunity to make things equitable. Um, but we still have the notion of uh, men's and women's handicaps and we still have courses that are not rated for everyone of every tee, which just is absolutely incredible to me. And it's absolutely incredible to me when we get into this sort of next point is that we're now going to be rating even shorter courses. So the, the, the distances that a nine-hole course and an 18-hole course had to be to qualify for a rating have effectively been cut in half from, I think, 3,000 yards for an 18-hole to qualify previously to now 1,500 yards. So 1,500 yards basically brings in effectively pitch and putts, right? So or par three courses, certainly. Certainly over nine holes where it's 750 yards. So I think a lot of people will have a lot to say about this. I'm not sure anyone will go down the point I'm about to make is that if there's the resource to rate um, par three courses and pitch and put golf courses, which, and the argument for doing that is because that is many people's entry point into the game. It's trying to 
give beginner golfers an improvement, um, a, a way of measuring their improvement as early as possible in their golfing journey. I kind of understand all that. If there's the resource and the time to do that, then why can't they rate the freaking tea, the yellow tees and the white tees at all golf clubs for women? I don't understand where the data is or the argument is to say that it's it's this is an equitable thing that we're doing. This is a kind of trying to create a pathway into the game. What about the pathway for women who are already in the game and are improving and want to be able to play whatever tees they want? I don't. The two things seem very conflicted to me. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting point. Um... It's an interesting point and certainly one that I hadn't considered because, you know, they do accept um, within the guidance document that's been said to clubs and counties, you know, on short courses, they do accept that this will increase the workload of county rating teams and the administration involved at England Golf to process them. So they are they are basically there saying um, there's going to be more demand. Currently, they're saying that only affiliated clubs will be able to gain a rating for a short course from 2024. So we're talking about already affiliated clubs and, and facilities that have, for example, maybe a nine-hole golf course on the side. There's, there's one in York called Forest Park, for example. That has, there's a nine-hole course. I think it's much bigger than – I think it's around 3,000 yards anyway. But anyway, it's an 18-hole course with a nine-hole venue uh, also. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean – the criticisms that I've seen about shorter courses are we shouldn't be rating pitch and putt. Um, golf is proper. This isn't proper golf. I don't agree with that particularly. And I think that golfers and golf clubs are just going to have to get around this. They're just going to have to start separating competition golf from handicaps because the two things are now separate. Um, the RNA and USGA's stated aim is to make handicapping as available to anybody who wants them. Um, and traditionally in GB&I, a handicap has been aspirational. It's been something that's on the journey of a golfer. You start pitching and putting around, then you go on the driving range, then you get foot on the golf course, then you let, you get a certain level of ability and then you gain a handicap. And that handicap is used for competition play and whs has smashed up all that entirely particularly with the advent of general play scores you know saying to people there's no real restrictions on when you can put a score in for handicap but this is a really big one for clubs to get their hands around because they haven't there's lots of people who still say well you know you shouldn't have a handicap if you're not playing in competitions and so on and so forth it's just it's just ridiculous the two things are separate now you're just going to have to get that in your heads and if they do that then the rating of shorter courses of of 750 yards and for nine holes and, and 1500 yards for 18 holes does allow an opportunity for people to get on the handicap ladder much earlier, like right at the very start of the journey. And that doesn't mean they're suddenly going to be turning up in competitions off 8 billion shot handicaps and winning them because, and lots of clubs forget this as well, the club is in command of who appears in their competitions and who does not. They've always been able to, to put limits down, handicap limits down on competitions within their within their terms of competition, too many clubs, I think, fall back on the excuse of, well, 54 handicappers shouldn't be blah, 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 instead of just getting a grip of it and sorting it out at their end. Um, but I do welcome the possibility of 
people getting handicaps much sooner on the journey because I think when you get a handicap you start to feel like a proper golfer whether that's 54 or 4 you start to feel like you're on the path um, and I, I think that's I, I personally think that's something to be welcomed it's no surprise Tom that they are an A behind this look at golf it as a facility golf it is like my prime thought of where something like short courses and shorter length courses is going to come into effect like that, like encapsulated in that building in Glasgow, yeah. so, in that nine-hole course. I've never really understood the argument that because you're sort of trying to discuss things that you think are going to affect club golfers, right? Um, I don't see how course ratings for nine-hole courses or pitch and putt is going to affect um, dyed-in-the-wool club golfers who are winning Stablefords or competing in Stablefords or whatever each week. Because as you say, trying to manage the entry criteria for that is within the gift of the golf club where i think it is a problem um, and i know what you'll say to this but where i think it is a problem is in handicap manipulation the other way so if you're someone who is trying to get the handicap down for whatever reason ego or because you want to get meet the entry criteria of a particular event then this kind of just further opens that up to you because if you can go and if you can go and play on a par three, you can have hundreds of goes at that, and sometimes you'll go around five or six under. But what's the problem with that? You I mean you've you've? It's not like you've not played. As long as you're playing your best golf, as long as you're trying to play your best golf, what's the problem with that? Because it's not. If you go around, not, if you go around a par three course, and, and and remember as well, you know that the course rating isn't simply going to transfer straight over. I mean, like the, the course rating from a nine hole course, a short course, is going to be very different to a nine holes on an eighteen hole golf course, for example. So you know, you're not going to see the, the the course rating minus par thing is going to be massively more the other way on these shorter courses than it is, for example, on a 3,200-yard, 3, 3,600-yard, nine-hole on an 18-hole golf course. I just think it's... I think there's so, there's so much in that, and the, the, but I'm, we're discussing it through the prism of the rating of shorter courses. But they've also... We're also saying that nine-hole scores can qualify for your handicap, and then it'll just be extrapolated up, basically, from your nine-hole score. Um, again, I just think that that... If you're um, a Category 1 golfer or if you're a plus handicap golfer who's trying to get into an elite amateur event or whatever else, then it becomes much, much easier to manipulate your handicap down because shooting a good score for nine holes is easier than shooting a good score for 18 holes just on a maths basis because you have to be good for less time. If you're playing a par 3 course, you have to be good at one aspect of the game, i.e. with your wedges and with your putter. Um, Losing a ball is like totally removed from the... um, from the, the, the potential outcomes on every shot that you hit. So if you're trying to sort of measure someone about their, their rounded golf game and therefore their suitability for entry into a scratch competition, then the way you're judging them is not fit for purpose because you're judging them in like a totally different set of circumstances. But that level of difficulty or not, as the case may be, should be reflected in course rating, right? It should be reflecting course rating, but that already, I think that point is worth making again, is that the kind of the what's the word? Not chastity. The kind of like the the it, that course rating has to be very robust, doesn't it? Because but it should, but it is. I think. I mean, if you've looked at the calculations, there are all sorts of different things that go into it. I mean, like just off the top of my head. You know, some of the things that impact course rating, for example, are obstacles. 
um, bunkers and, and 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 such like. Well, if you've got a par three, if you've got a par three course and those obstacles aren't there, those hazards aren't there, then the course rating will reflect that. Yeah, but that doesn't. But course rating doesn't take into account like shortened courses. Like we, so if, if me and you went and played at Old Woodley tomorrow, right? We've now got some winter black tees which are rated right enough, and they've been moved forward. But not all clubs have got that. What most clubs have got is some yellow tees that they move forward in the winter, right? So they each hole might play 20 or 30 yards shorter. That is before you get into green bunkers being GUR, then being no rough, the course being softer. Like going playing golf this time of year is inherently easier than it is playing on a bouncy summer's day. So there's a very strict winter checklist that comes into play to make courses acceptable for handicap purposes during the winter. The course can't be more than 100 yards short. There's a very, very limited circumstance where that, it can how be. Is, Steve, how is that in reality? How is that administered? Because, But that's a, it's up to clubs to administer it, right? I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's up to clubs to administer it's it. No, it's not. It really isn't. It really isn't. The greenkeeper comes in and says, I've moved these tee spots forward. The course is 150 yards shorter than it normally would be. Club administrator goes, right. The course isn't qualifying today. Clicks a button that says no scores can count. That's all it is. That's all it is. And that you think that's happening? I'm not sure whether it's happening, but this, but this is the point I'm making about WHS in general. I see. I yeah. I don't think I agree. I so I think it. The old system of Congu, whilst it obviously wasn't perfect, what it was was binary. So you are either playing the qualifying competition or you're not. Whereas now there's all this freaking greyness around, does the course qualify? Have I said I'm going to put a score in? Can I basically choose whether I'm going to put a score in after the fact or not? So much is like delegated to the golfer and to the competition th- th- committee. These, these, these rules around... Um around like, like length of course for winter have always been in place. They're in place under Congo. Um, and while a lot of clubs didn't hold qualifying rounds in the winter because it was the winter some did some did yeah absolutely yeah but it but it was at club level it was a binary thing and it was the club that said this is a qualifying competition or not i actually didn't know about that button about whether you can qualify as where it whether it can be qualifying or not but i'm my guess would be that that isn't well used and if i went and played golf at any golf course around me tomorrow and chose to put a score in i could do off a very shortened course against the yellow t rating I'm going to give you an example, which is my own golf club. My golf club, which is York Golf Club. I've got so many golf clubs, but York is a golf club of mine. Um, they sent they sent a message. Uh, the course is obviously closed today, but before it shut, they sent a message out. Um, the the course. So I'm going to go off Monday's message actually because it's the one I've got to hand. They send a message out on course conditions every day, which says course open brackets NQ non qualifying. Three temporary greens in play, no buggies, halfway house open. So the, there is a club that is actively telling its members you can put a score in or you can't put a score in because of what because of, of, of measures that we've taken on the golf course. So in this case, it's because there's more than two temporary greens in play. There's three temporary greens in play. So of course it's non-qualified. It's as easy as that. Mm. Fair enough. Um and then, so I think that that rating of short courses, the rating of courses in general, is it's still such a bone of contention because it, I think it's this 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 kind of delegation of responsibility. It's that's the thing that I think is the big shift. And whenever I hear um, 
James or anyone talk about it from the games administrators, I kind of get it. Like everything's trackable from a digital point of view. Everything is within the gift of the competition committee or the golfer. But that is that is saying like we don't have the resource to do this properly. So we're going to the responsibilities being put on you to do it properly. It's very easy, I think, for the golf club to say we don't have the resource to do it properly either. Um, it's an int- it's an interesting debate that you've started there because in the wider scheme of the WHS changes announced last week, this is probably the one that's had certainly in terms of our numbers, Tom, metrics of people who are looking at our stories, this is the one that's had the least attention currently. The short courses thing. Yeah, yeah. But I just think yeah, it's, the, it's, really it's, the broad, it's the broader point about course rating. So if you if you were trying to rate a par three course, so there's a par three course at Leeds Golf Centre, um, the longest holes, like, I don't know, 130 yards and the shortest one's 80 yards. So, I mean, how do you know how you go about rating that? So I would be surprised if the course rating for that comes out at anything much less than sort of two under par. But it's like very feasible that you go out and shoot six under par pretty regularly if enough goes at it. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, someone mentioning no names will allow me to have a copy of the course rating Bible and we can reveal some of this stuff to the audience. There is an opportunity, I think. I'm not sure I'm supposed to say this, but I'm going to try and do it. There there, there has been an opportunity within clubs to... um, to do a level one course rating um, and um, and go through sort of like a webinar and a seminar and get up to date with the basics of course rating. So I don't know how many clubs have taken advantage of that, but I, I certainly know if you've got access to, I certainly know in England, if you've got access to England golf's um, WHS stuff, there is a possibility to start going down the course rating line and, um, and learn more about it. I'm going to try and see if I can do that and, and and write about it. And maybe that'll give people a bit more of an insight into course rating and um, how it's done. Yeah, I think I think course rating is the kind of the key to unlocking the whole thing as like an equitable system. Um, the third big change um, is this, and this is massive in it in terms of in terms of club golfers for all kinds of reasons. So match play, four ball, better ball scores will now can now count towards your handicap index, which is a change from previously. Like the mechanic of it happening is kind of like unbelievably complicated, but it doesn't matter, I don't suppose, because that will happen in the background. Unless you are so into manipulating your handicap that you've taken the time to understand the mechanic of it happening and then you've then contrived your score to make sure you still win the pot, but your handicap doesn't move. But it's something like if you score on more than nine holes in a four ball, better ball competition, your your score that day can count towards your handicap index. And on the scores where you haven't um, contributed to the team score, you'll be given a score which is based off your playing partner's score, i.e. if they've got three points, you'll be given two points. And effectively, it would be assumed that you scored one point worse than your partner who has contributed to the score. Yeah, so you're nearly there. Um, you're nearly there with this. And let me just explain it um, for anyone who didn't listen to the podcast last week and are a bit confused about it because we do need to get the technicalities of it right. Um, so it, these acceptable score, four ball, better ball will not be an acceptable score within World Handicap System. So you can't go and play a general play around as a better ball and it'll count. Um, it only applies in competitions and it only applies in stroke play, stable foot or par bogey. Um, 
for your score, for your better ball score to count, to possibly count your WHS record, one of the pair must have scored on a minimum of nine holes. The total pair score has to be at least 42 points or six under par. If you hit those triggers and the golf who scored on the nine hole minimum will have the rest of their round upscaled based, as Tom correctly said, on what their playing partners have done on those other holes. Now that points, that the points that they can get are either zero one or 1.5 depending on what their partner scores on their holes and then when those nine or however many holes that the 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 main player has participated in are added up along with the um holes placed on the playing partner score if that score equates to 36 points or level par or better it then gets added into their whs record so it is i mean like james described it to me last week as I, I described it to him as complicated. He said it was simple, but he thought that's because he'd been working around it for a long time. I can tell you, I tried to explain this last night at a handicap matches and competitions meeting in my own club where I was sort of called in to speak about WHS for five minutes. It's complicated. It's complicated. Um, the only thing I can say is that golfers and club people won't have to do anything with this the software will do it in the background where i think clubs will need to get involved is when a player gets docked and goes why have i been docked and then they're going to go to their handicap committee and they're going to say well explain this to me and then you're gonna you're going to have to understand the system um i would say uh in the defense of anyone that's criticizing this is that clubs asked for it like in numbers apparently across congo nations it was one of the when, when they presented um, the WHS plans, this was one of the things that the vast majority of clubs asked for, something to deal with better ball in competitions. Because, like it or not, um, there is uh, a belief that um, four ball competitions in particular can be manipulated by teams of players who are not necessarily um, playing a lot of individual events throughout the season. Now, the home nations and the RNA and the USGA have chosen to look at this one way, which is that it allows um, more opportunity for people to put in scores that will count for their handicap. The other way of looking at it, which is a way that I think most clubs and club golfers might look at it, is this is an attempt to try and stop people manipulating four-ball competitions. Well, that's what it is, isn't it? So I think I th- I think so personally I think and 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 I think it's welcome. Now I'm I'm sure we're going to talk about the way that it's being done and the way other ways are done in other parts of the world but you know like WHS gets a lot of hits from people um and for for the for the various reasons many of which we've talked about on podcasts before but if you do complain about something and you complain vociferously about it enough with enough evidence, then it does appear that people will listen to you. That happened with the PCC, didn't it? Um, people complained about the playing conditions calculation. They brought in a new algorithm. The PCC in England moved 15% um, compared to something like 5% that it was. People have complained about four ball, better ball. They've complained about it in numbers. They are trying to do something about it. So I think we should at least give them credit for that before we actually get into... I've been away for one week, Steve, and you've gone native. Honestly, you're going to peel your jumper off and it's going to have a great big red rose on it. 
but be like I love WHS on it. Um, <laughs> I just think you you sort of should give you know for all the criticisms of WHS and there are, and, and and it's still not a perfect system, and it still does some things that absolutely infuriate me. But there there are there are efforts being made to to sort of address some of the concerns of people, right? I think we have to at least accept that. I don't really know where to start with that because I think there's so many different directions you could take this in. So, but just to get back to the point, so they've now put in this like unbelievably complicated metric where basically whereby if someone dominates a four ball and they win, then they get handicap cut for it. Would be a way of summarising it, wouldn't it? Yeah, probably. Um, so. You can say all of you like about the reasons they've done that. Oh, it's going to encourage more people to submit more cards. It's bollocks. It's to try and stop sandbaggers winning pairs competitions. Um, and if it was for any other reason, then they would have gone down the most likely score route, which is what you have everywhere else. So if you ask, if you ask me what I think about it, I think it's an absolute fudge that is responding to people moaning at them. And I don't think that absolute fudges as a result of people moaning at you ever end well. Because well, well let, let's not, see. Not, I mean, that is not a reasoned decision. That is a re- that is a decision taken to try and keep a certain section of people quiet. Let's see what the proof of the pudding is uh, when we get some data as we as we move into the season. Um, I I don't disagree with you on on most likely score. The problem with most likely score is golfers in Great Britain and Ireland will not accept most likely score. They just won't. So. If, if you're not going to accept most likely score and you want to do something about four ball, better ball competitions, then you're in a quandary. Um, now, yes, I agree. I agree. I, to- I understand how we've got here, but I just think that like, why, why? I would say, Tom, that clubs have always been able to take four ball, better ball scores into consideration when dealing with handicaps. You know, if they believe that somebody has been, as you put it, sandbagging club competitions by winning a load of four-ball team events, they have always been able to take those scores and deal with them um, and provide, as long as they've got the evidence, whatever cuts that they want. But will clubs do that? Um, I'm not sure that they necessarily will because they may not believe that they have the evidence or they may not want it to get into conflict with players. Exactly. Or um, Whereas where is this, this does try to do something about it. Yeah, I just, I just, I don't know what it is about Great Britain and Ireland as you've described it or whatever, but like, why can we not just adopt the system in the same way that everyone else adopts the bloody system? Like why... Like I don't, I don't understand the logic, particularly of saying that the British golfer won't accept the concept of most likely score when every other golfer in the world accepts the concept of most likely score. And it's not like it's not like it's not like that. People who are in their seventies and eighties who have been playing golf for sixty years are all of a sudden going to down tools and say that's it for me. I'm off to Crown Green Bowls because you're making me use most likely score. Surely the whole, but every single thing that all the people say about WHS it is to get people submitting scores more often at all levels. And if you want that to happen, then most likely score should be a thing. And the expectation should be that people like me and you, every time we go and play, we put a score in. And to make that feasible, we need the concept of most likely score. And then we don't need fudges about four ball better balls we just need to understand that the expectation is we always submit score 
going to put that in a headline, a quote, stick it out on social for everyone to listen. Watch your, watch your email basket and watch your, watch your ex basket fill up. What? Um, um, what the one thing I can I say this? Uh, yeah, probably. And if I don't, I'll just cut it out. <laughs> um, someone in the know, um, who I can't say who it is, has said to me regarding handicapping worldwide that handicapping worldwide is settling down largely apart from GB and I. Well, right. So, so what does that tell you? That's me before offline, and I think. Is it's the biggest change here, right? So if you go, if you walked into a country club in America and said, "What do you think about WHS?" They'd say, "Well, it's not much different to the old system. What's fuss about?" So it's a big change here. So I can understand why it's settling down, but I also think that we just that because we've done the Brexit analogy on this before, haven't we? But it's very similar in the sense that we're saying, "Okay, yeah, we'd like to play with your system, please." but we want to pick and choose which aspects of your system we're going to use because we don't think that our golfers are going to like these aspects of it. And therefore, we end up with this kind of Frankenstein's monster of a system, yeah, yeah. which basically yeah. suits no one. Which is how we got into trouble with course rating minus par in the first place, yeah. I think. Um, but there is a wider... There is still like a lot of a lot of complaints about WHS. Someone tweeted me the other day and said, "When will England when when will England golf allow the membership to vote on whether we keep WHS or not?" Um, and I still think there is uh, a clutch of golfers, a decent uh, number of golfers, who think if they just shout loud enough about WHS, that the governing bodies will will eventually go. Do you know what? You're right. Let's go back to Congo. And I got to tell you, those people are living in cloud cuckoo land. But, but, um, but Steve, like you say that, but like it's a bit like your kids, isn't it? Like you, we've, what you've just said is that people have moaned about uh, course rating minus par. So now we've got course rating minus par. People have moaned about four ball better balls not counting. So now we've got some weird way of four ball better balls counting. And that is because of the masses moaning on social media by whatever avenues are open to them. And that is the problem, that's the problem, isn't it? Is that if you get, if you start responding to every single piece of feedback, you just end up all over the show. Whereas if they just said the word go, this is the new system, like it or lump it, four years down the line, it'll have all gone away, wouldn't it? Because there would be no but, changes. But the point is that you're complaining, the, the complaints that you're making are small within the sum of the larger whole, right? And the larger whole is that the RNA and USGA are the people that organise this. And they're unmoved, I think, by quite a lot of this stuff. Um, and people blame England golf, they blame Wales golf, they blame Scottish golf, and they say, well, th this is your system. It's not their system. It's the RNA and USGA system, and these are the two biggest bodies in world golf that control by far the majority of the world's golfing jurisdictions who have basically embarked on this scheme and they're not going backwards because their stated aim is handicaps for all golf for all they are not suddenly going to decide do you know what ladies and gentlemen we made a mistake with this just carry on as you used to do before and have six different handicapping systems. And so people who are asking England golf, for example, to break away from WHS and return to Congo, there is, 
there is no way on this earth that the England uh, England golf are going to disaffiliate themselves from the RNA and the USGA and go off on their own on handicapping. There's absolutely no way. So unless the RNA and USGA say at some point in the future, we've messed this up, chaps, um, go and do your own thing, which they're not going to do, we're stuck with WHS. Which I think is... If that's the right, right way of putting that is, it. That is right, obviously perfectly reasonable. We're not going to go back. I agree with that. The point I'm making is that because the because the whole thing has not been adopted from the beginning, like you cut once and you cut deep, right? And then the wound starts to heal. The wound starts to heal rather. And so if they if we'd adopted every single aspect of WHS from the very beginning, including most likely score, then four years down the line, we'd be four years closer to everybody be happy with that. But this kind of notion of kind of like do a bit, respond to feedback, do a bit, amend it to suit it just it never gets fixed, does it? Because everyone's cross about the change, and then so on, and it, on it on it goes. Mm. I think at some point, um, and I think and I think this will change as um, let, let's assume that that WHS is going nowhere, and that in a decade's time we're still we're still discussing WHS. I, I'm prepared to bet that the conversation around WHS in GB and I will be very different to the one that we're having now because the demographics will change. Um, there are obviously people who are coming into golf who WHS is the only thing that they've ever seen. Um, there'll be people of our generation who've had a decade to get used to WHS. And then there'll be the older generation who, you know, sadly may or may not no long, may or may not no longer be with us. Um, and these things will always move um, as time passes as well. Time's a great healer, so they say, right? Yeah, uh, I actually, I mean, just for the record, I actually really like it. I love the fact that you can put a score into an app and see your index moving and it's all out there and you can choose to submit a card if you want to. I think it's great. Um, I just think I've been given too much responsibility. Good place to finish, isn't it? Yeah, probably is. As ever, we'd love to know what you think about WHS, the changes to it and all of the various nuances that it throws up. It's worse than VAR, isn't it? Well, funnily enough, people have been likening it to VAR um, over the last few days. Um, so there's there's there's, def- there's definitely parallels to be struck. Yeah. Um, and if you are enjoying our podcast, please do subscribe. It massively helps our numbers. Uh, and we'll see you next time, I suppose. Cheers, Tom. Look forward to it. Bye.